Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that features the very best in productivity and professional development in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Patton McDowell, and I have a fantastic bonus episode to share with you. And it's actually my first international guest, author and consultant Andrew Hollow, who just delivers a goldmine of resources and frameworks to help you think about nonprofit leadership and strategic planning. Uh, now, while there are certainly some differences, particularly in the funding of nonprofits around the globe, there are so many more similarities, and Andrew illustrates them very well in our conversation. His book is titled From Impossible to Possible, and I think it's more relevant now than ever. And we talk about the fundamental question what do you do with your strategic plan when everything seems to be thrown out the window right now? Andrew has some great advice on that topic, and in fact, a framework to help you divide your plan into three distinct phases going forward. We also talk about four existential questions that every nonprofit should be asking right now, and he also has a great exercise to help you uh, map out the partnerships your nonprofit currently relies on. In fact, I think it'll help you determine which organizations you should, in fact, double down on your partnership and others you should pull back because perhaps you are spreading yourself too thin across this landscape of partnerships that are critical to the individuals, families, and organizations you serve. Finally, Andrew and I talk about the three rules he's identified for all nonprofits to follow And he adds literally half a shelf worth of great book recommendations to the PMA library and ones I think you will find relevant for your reading list as well. Well, especially, don't forget to check out the show notes for this episode. It's number 41, this bonus episode. Just go to the podcast or the news page at PattonMcDowell.com and you'll find all of the resources and topics and especially books that uh, Andrew and I discuss and he recommended to our listeners. You can also find out more about the great work he's doing across Australia at his firm, Workwell Consulting. And as a special bonus to our listeners, Andrew has provided a link that we'll have in our show notes that you can get a free downloadable version of his book, From Impossible to Possible. Make sure you check that out. And I'm sure it will be a book that you will enjoy adding to your list. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Andrew Hollow. Andrew, thank you for joining me on the path. Thank you, Patton, for inviting me to have this conversation with you. I'm really pleased and excited. Well, it's fun to connect with someone halfway around the world who is, though, also dealing with many of the same issues nonprofit leaders are dealing with, frankly, anywhere in the world. And I'm a fan of your work, uh, having had the opportunity to read your book titled From Impossible to Possible. I realized that you'd be a perfect person to talk to, frankly, at this particular time, um, talking about strategic planning and organizations and some of the issues they're dealing with. But before we get into that and your good advice Tell me how you got into the kind of consulting work you do and what inspires you to work with nonprofit organizations in particular. Well, I'm the child of uh, post-war European migrants and uh, the the post-World War II diaspora that sent millions to the US, certainly, but also Australia, New Zealand, Canada. Uh, My parents were from Hungary in the 1950s and they were escapees from uh, a communist system. And what I grew up with, Patton, was uh, this constant refrain of aren't we lucky living in this wonderful place where you flick a switch and the lights turn on? You go to the grocery store or the supermarket and the shelves are fully stocked. Uh, No one is going to simply, uh, you know, uh, tap you on the shoulder in the middle of the night or in the middle of the street and take you away on trumped up charges of some sort. Um, You know, these things don't happen in Australia. (laughs) And uh, so... I was I was raised with this tremendous appreciation for the world that we've got compared to the world that my parents grew up in and then escaped from. 
And uh, as a child, of course, you take that for granted. But as an adult, and then uh, my, my field of study was psychology, and I became very interested not just in individual psychology, but also this question of, well, how did we get here? How do we create a society where the lights turn on and you right. don't get hauled away on trumped-up charges and the water comes out of the tap and it's clean and safe to drink? And so fast-forwarding to today, they're my clients. Um, they're uh, public sector, public value organisations who are keeping us healthy, keeping us safe, keeping you know law and order, just uh, uh, you know ensuring children grow up uh, with you know uh, strong teeth in their heads and you know strong minds in 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 themselves. And so it's it's directly linked to I think my my upbringing and my my cultural background. That's fantastic. And again, there's evidence of so many of the projects you've done over the last 20 plus years. And we'll talk about that um, and how you apply all that you've learned to organizations, particularly now that are struggling. But Andrew, mm. I always ask my guests, um, how do you stay organized? <laughs> you're, you're managing many, many relationships, organizations, and a lot mm -hmm. of content. Have you found anything in particular that's helped you do it even better? Well, look, there's, there are two ways of answering that question. There's the general and the specific. The general is, what do I do normally? And the specific is, uh, we're talking here under uh, the tail end of a COVID lockdown. Right. And therefore, uh, there are some things I've been learning over the last 60, 90 days that, that are different. But to, to keep it brief, I'd say four things that work for me. One is uh, be more connected rather than less connected with people. And that means more meetings, but shorter. So uh, spend time on Zoom and the phone and talk to my clients, my prospects uh, far more frequently. Um, the second for me is be super focused. Uh, I've, I'm making an assumption that what used to take an hour if I was meeting face to face might now take half an hour. And right. that seems to be roughly true. Um, I'm having a lot of meetings that are 10 minutes, uh, which is fantastic. Um, uh, I would say two other things. One is use tools, and I've been using uh, a lot of tools in the group work that I do. The strategy work uh, that I uh, undertake is often with groups of executives, groups of board directors, and we're using now tools like polling tools, like Mentimeter. Um, I'm using collaborative whiteboarding where people can control a whiteboard remotely and add sticky notes and move them around and there are tools like mural it's terrific wow. I, I didn't know much about these tools before covid and then the last is uh get help so for me that translates into having an amazing uh team of virtual assistants who just keep me organized and keep me focused and can uh, do a lot of the uh, background work that keeps my projects humming so yeah th that's what's working for me right now uh, love that. And, and certainly you have taken advantage of technologies you already knew and it sounds like you have been learning new technologies as well, which perhaps is, is uh, good advice for all of us to consider, especially since we're in this remote environment. Um, well, this is this is this is it, and I, and I think this environment we're in at the moment it forces learning, and uh, which is is both uh, uh, a little anxiety inducing at times, but at other times it's an absolute gift and a pleasure. So uh, I'll, I'll take both. Absolutely. Uh, well, again, I, I lift up your book, and it seems the title perhaps is more appropriate now than ever, you know, because I feel like a lot of nonprofit leaders I'm speaking with, Andrew, feel like they're in an almost impossible situation, you know, going from impossible to possible. Um, what are you seeing as you interact with organizations that are perhaps struggling? And what are some of the challenges that they're, they're facing right now? This is where I suspect that uh, the Australian context is a little different to the US context. Yeah. Uh, uh, in the US, I believe that a lot of nonprofits are reliant on uh, philanthropy for funding. Um, in Australia, that's minimal. So uh, only about 6% of the income 
for non-profit organisations uh, comes from uh, philanthropy in Australia. The remainder is largely from uh, grants, government grants and uh, fee-for-service income. So uh, most of them actually don't have uh, vast financial issues right now because the work continues. Healthcare, the demand is there. Disability services, the demand is there. Aged care, the demand is there. You know, homelessness, the demand is there. These these customers are not going anywhere. Um, But where they do have challenges are in two areas. One is workforce, and in particular, it's the return to work question. It's how do we exit from uh, the COVID lockdown and get people back to work productively and optimistically? So there's a practical question and there's also the the culture and motivation question. Uh, Pat and I was on a call last week with a, a group of 33 people And I was just testing the polling software I was using, Mentimeter, and I just asked a trial question, uh, a multiple choice question. Uh, All of these people are currently at home working, and I asked them, uh, A or B? A, uh, I'd like to continue working from home, uh, and B, uh, I miss the office and I'd like to go back. Um, Can Uh you and you or your listeners guess how many people said they'd like to go back to the office? Um, it was six out of 33 only. Uh, So I I think my clients are dealing with these sorts of questions of what do we do with people who have now had a taste of working very differently with our clients? Um, And then the other related question is service models. Uh, A lot of customers or clients of organisations are now uh, receiving a a blended service model combination of digital and face-to-face and a lot of those people I don't think will want to go back to the old ways where these new ways are working really well for them. Um, So in schools for example I have clients in the education sector there are students turning up to class now digitally who were not turning up to -to face-to-face classes in high schools. Interesting. Um, And and the education department uh, is asking this very important question, which is, well, how do we keep those kids coming to school even after the lockdown lifts? That's amazing. And, well, in using this, I guess, subset of the working population that you polled last week, do you think most, Mm -hmm. they would argue that, yeah, we're able to deliver the services and programs we we uh, need to uh, from this remote location? In other words, we don't have to go back. Well, and, and I think you've, you've nailed it, Patton. That is the, the fundamental question, which is uh, let's look at what our customers want. Let's backtrack from that and ask what would service look like. Let's backtrack from that and ask what's the optimum delivery model, digital versus face-to-face. And usually it's a blend. Uh, and then where the blend leans towards digital, do those people have any realistic prospect of working from home? And my sense is that uh, it should. It should. Right. Uh, I have one client uh, that employs 750 people in an office building in downtown Melbourne, uh, and they're now asking a very basic question, which is uh, when our lease is up for renewal in 2022, do we need another head office of 750 people, or would 250 suffice? And right. I think they're leaning towards the latter. Well, and again, you're asking the right questions of your clients, and in fact, it was among the first things when you and I first had conversation about this. Mm. The, 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 the classic question I'm getting is, you know, my strategic plan, I might as well throw it out the window. You know, they were the <laughs> typical three to five year uh, document. Yeah. But you uh-huh. have been great to counsel people that maybe not so fast, don't throw it away, but tell me how you are addressing that fundamental question. How do we uh, readdress mm. our strategic mm. plans? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, Patton, because uh, it's it is the question my clients have asked me literally from day one. Especially those clients for whom I've helped develop their strategy. They've exactly. come back and said, Andrew, um, what do you think? Now, what I have said is, look, my motto in life is believe nothing, test everything. So 
don't uh, assume one way or the other, rather make an assumption both ways. So test the assumption, firstly, that your strategy holds true. Go through it line by line and ask yourself what remains relevant? Uh, what should we be challenging? And then do the other assumption as well, which is assume that it is now invalid um, and ask yourself which of our base assumptions do we need to re-examine? Yeah. Now, having done this with a number of clients over the last 60 days, what they've found is that on the whole, on the whole, in human services, healthcare, aged care, disability, um, and regulation, which is where I tend to spend a lot of my time, mostly um, the essence of their strategy holds true. If they were focused on growth, they still are. If they were focused on quality, they still are. If they were focused on increasing comprehensiveness and breadth of service, they still are. So those things don't change, but the tactics might differ. And the tactics might uh, mean uh, that, yeah, the way we organise our workforces will be different. Uh, the way our revenue streams might function might be a little different. Uh, and we need to obviously have a stronger uptake of uh, technology for digital delivery. Um, those things, but they're, they're tactical, I would argue, not strategic. Good point. And, but aren't you finding that, um, I guess optimistically, that there are new opportunities that may emerge? And perhaps instead of just immediately oh, yeah. kind of panicking over this strategic mm -hmm. issue, aren't your clients are finding that maybe there is actually some good things that can come out of this? Look, very much so, very much so. And by good things, it's it's so interesting because, uh, yeah, what my education clients are realising is they now have got a much more nuanced view of the mental health and wellbeing issues of their students. Now, right. you might say, well, gee, that's kind of bad news because clearly some kids are struggling in school and we didn't know that. Now, my argument is, no, that's an opportunity. You now know things you did not know uh, and you've got more nuanced information at your disposal and you can now develop a much more tailored um, uh, service offering that is uh, truly customised to what you know about your clients, whereas before you might only have had one or two things you did, assuming that the majority of kids with a mental health issue at school fell into just a couple of categories. It makes total sense. And that's, it, I hope, uh, again, many of our organizational colleagues will use that approach and that attitude that maybe uncovers opportunities uh, even more. Um, change is scary. Uh, and you have a phrase, however, that I think addresses, uh, I guess, Andrew, is it, is it counter to instead of change management, you like the, the phrase change readiness. Um, talk about change readiness. And what do you mean by that? <sighs> Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and the, the premise pattern is that uh, change management puts the locus of control and power in those managing the change. Change readiness transfers it to the person doing the changing. And, uh, you know, people can't be compelled to change. They can only be invited to join uh, something that represents a change. And so my comment to my clients is uh, you are far better off detecting and diagnosing change readiness than you are in making uh, detailed plans for change management. Uh, because what you will find is that in most organisations, there's that famous uh, curve the normal distribution curve right. of, um, you know, the adoption of innovation curve, which says, yeah, in any organisation, you are going to have your innovators, the, the people who can't wait to do things differently. <laughs> early adopters. They'll spark off the early adopters. Uh, they'll spark off an early majority. Eventually, a late majority will come on board and then a question remains, what do you do with the laggards? Um, but what I find with change management is that change management focuses undue attention often on the late majority and the laggards 
and right, says, how do we right. manage those people? Whereas my um, uh, experience is, no, no, focus your attention on the innovators and early adopters, even if they are only 15% of your organisation. Get them doing something to act as an exemplar to the others. And that's then how you capture change readiness at the outset, but then also grow it uh, uh, in stages over weeks or months. I love that. And it, of course, just represents a more proactive approach, it seems to me, and one that is less daunting uh, for organizations. Frankly, all organizations right now are going to have to consider their attitude toward change. And that's why I like the way you put it in terms of readiness. Um, you also have helped phrase, and maybe this is tied, Andrew, to a similar kind of change readiness plan. Um, you talk about three phases of, of transition or change. I wonder if you could elaborate on how organizations might uh, divide their planning in, in terms of these three phases. Yeah, and look, again, I would, uh, and, and the three phases really are around uh, continuity, uh, sustaining and reinvention, if we could call them that. And um, again, what I've noticed during uh, the COVID lockdown is that uh, it has shortened the strategic cycle for people. So rather than thinking in three to five year timeframes, they've been thinking in nine to 12 month timeframes, where the first task for them has been the continuity assurance question, you know, 30, 60 days, what can we do to mobilise our resources, our systems, our people, uh, to make sure that we can continue delivering the service? Right. Um, that then leads quite naturally, and, and certainly here in, in Australia, we're mostly through that mobilisation phase, and we are now in a stabilisation phase. And this is where the sustaining uh, occurs, which is to say... Um, we are now building new capacity for new ways. Um, so uh, one of my uh, healthcare clients has turned pretty much all of their allied health delivery into digital delivery, and it's making sure that they are now responding to feedback from their customers. They're building capacity both in the customer base and in the service delivery base to make sure this works as well as possible, and they're uh, what I call curating the signal from the noise, um, meaning that they're putting a lot of effort into communications, both for their staff, but also for their customers. So if people are concerned, if people are worried, uh, if people are asking, well, what about this? Uh, they've got clear uh, answers to those questions. Right. And then the last part is really about the reinvention. It's And this is where the best organisations uh, function. They're not satisfied with mobilising and stabilising. They're saying, here is an opportunity for reinvention. So uh, a lot of the work I'm doing currently this month uh, is going to be uh, organisations asking a single question, which is, what have we learned uh, during COVID and the lockdown that we want to carry forward into our future business as usual. Um, and what systems do we need to redesign? Uh, what service models do we need to rethink? Are there business models that no longer work and other ones that would work far better? And so uh, my most progressive clients are uh, already asking that question and that's where their executives and boards are spending their time in addition to the mobilizing and stabilizing. Absolutely. And I love that. And I think you're right. Uh, I hope more organizations will take that approach. I fear that many stop after the first two, uh, stabilization mm, and just simply mm. keeping the, the doors open. But I, I've got to believe here in the States that funders, philanthropic funders, are going to reward mm -hmm. those organizations that are focused on reinvention. And of mm -hmm. course, you and I'll talk more about opportunities for partnerships mm. and other things that maybe emerge in this time that uh, otherwise may not have been present. Uh, so excited to, to get into that. Um, uh, also excited again to, to get into existential questions, which I don't often get to in these interviews, Andrew, but you pose four existential questions that you think organizations should be uh, asking right now. So I wonder if you'll join me on this, uh, on this side of the sure. equation. And 
depending on which day you ask me, my existential <laughs> questions will change somewhat. Right. Having right, said yeah. that, they come back. They come back to a common core, and it's the core of. Um, again, it's, it's, it's the title of the book, From Impossible to Possible, um, what is the fundamental value? And therefore, I, I would say today, the four existential questions any organisation should be asking are things like, uh, number one, who is our ideal customer? Number two, what do they want the most? Uh, in other words, what will make the biggest difference in their lives? Uh, number three, related to number two, is what's the single biggest difference we can make? Um, and number four, uh, what should we stop doing? It's always very easy and almost lazy strategy yep. to ask the question of what else could we do? Because everyone can think of a hundred things, but it's a harder question to ask, well, then what should we stop doing? Steve Jobs famously said, and I, I quote this to my clients frequently, uh, when asked, well, what's uh, one of the secrets of Apple's success back when he was CEO? Uh, and he said, oh, we know how to say no to good ideas. Um, and <laughs> what, what he was essentially saying is we have no shortage of good ideas. Right. What we need is the ability to differentiate between the truly great ideas and those that are merely excellent. That's so good. And it, it easy to get distracted and I think spread too thin in certainly oh, yeah. profit or nonprofit, as Jobs alludes mm -hmm. to, and nonprofits have to be perhaps even more disciplined around opportunities mm -hmm. because they can get mm -hmm. uh, stretched too thin, as I mentioned. Um, yeah. 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 And, and if, I could, if I could tell a quick story about sure. this, this, you know, the power of an existential question, because I, I, I firmly believe these are very practical. They're, they're not theoretical, philosophical discussions going on around the board table. They actually make a difference to the uh, beneficiary of the organisation. So one of my clients last year was a disability support organisation that's been in existence for about 30 years. And they specialised in uh, working with people with spinal cord injury. So uh, mostly people with quadriplegia and paraplegia. Right. And they've provided in-home support services and technical supports for people who have found themselves uh, all of a sudden in a wheelchair. Um, or uh, sometimes without very much mobility at all. And our work together by asking who's our ideal customer and what do they want fundamentally and what's the single biggest difference we can make, it had them realise that actually their ideal customer is not just people with spinal cord injury. It's people with any life-changing event that has dramatically affected their physical mobility or even their mental uh, capacity. Right. And so what, what they've now realised is, oh, we can, our fundamental job here is helping people adjust to a catastrophic life change and still have quality of life beyond that. And what they've now realised is what they're what their clients want is, yes, they still need the in-home support and they still want uh, the technical support, but now what they're also wanting is uh, assistance to adjust emotionally and psychologically to such a profound change in the first five years. You've given them a new perspective, haven't you? And Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And it opens them up to lines of new funding. It opens them up to ways of getting uh, a huge number of new clients. Uh, it opens them up to skill sets and capability sets that they uh, want to and need to build up inside the organization. And uh, uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's phenomenal the change uh, in both the uh, offerings to the customers as well as uh, the uh, quality of thinking amongst the staff um, simply because we asked these existential questions in a structured way uh, 12 months ago. I think it's, it's fantastic. Uh, is, is the barrier to this way of thinking, and I hate to use the cliche, but is it, do you find organizations, these are good people, obviously you're working with, are, are they Naturally. simply guilty of the, the cliche of, well, we've just always done it that way? What do you think 
is the barrier to that yeah. type of thinking. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that is that is absolutely right. Pattern is is we get we get stuck, and I don't mean stuck in a negative way. I, I think what I mean is we become habitualized to certain things. So I'm sitting in my office right now as I speak. Um, I've got a piece of carpet on my floor that's slightly loose. And for the last six months, I've been stepping around it quite automatically. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> if, if you walked in here or any of uh, you listening would walk in here, you'd say, Andrew, you need to fix that carpet. <laughs> right. I need a new carpet, possibly. Um, but, of course, I've habitualized to the fact that there's this loose piece that I can simply step over. So, so I think that's what happens in organisations. Uh, we overlook things because... Uh, uh, it's it's convenient for us to just continue stepping through the way we always have. That's that's a great illustration, and I, I'm sure we're all guilty. And that's why it is helpful to have a thought partner like you come in that can help someone look at a different perspective, even if it's been right in front of them, perhaps the whole time. Uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, and, and and I think that's that's true. This is certainly what my clients say. Is I mean, I always ask my clients, uh, why do you need a consultant? Uh, why can't you just do this yourselves? Right. And uh, <laughs> the, 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 at least half the time, they will say what you just said, which is, we need someone to challenge us. We need someone to ask questions that wouldn't even occur to us. Uh, and we need someone to help us answer them honestly, because right. chances are we might answer them partially truthfully, but not in depth and not truly in a frank and challenging way. Well put. And again, that is, I think, why both of us enjoy this kind of interaction mm-hmm. with organizations uh, to be yeah. that kind of new perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, Something I've been fascinated in your work, of course, is is what community partnerships and collaboration. And some of my mm. doctoral research was, in fact, on nonprofit collaboration and mergers. And so I'm really eager to ask mm-hmm. you about the mm. exercise you lift up in your book. Uh, I think you phrase it as kind of mapping your partners. Can you talk mm-hmm. a bit about mm-hmm. that and, you know, the sure. origin of that exercise and why I think mm. nonprofits should be doing that right now? Yeah, look, I, I think it goes without saying. It's certainly something that uh, your listeners, uh, you yourself in your work pattern, are well aware of is that we're all working on so-called wicked problems. And, you know, those wicked problems are the things that have no single cause, no single solution, no single metric. Um, they're, they're, they're complex and... Uh, you know, my clients are doing things like, you know, trying to end homelessness or trying to uh, make cancer, you know, a chronic condition that's survivable or try to solve uh, what in Australia is turning into a bit of a mental health epidemic amongst young people. So any of these things, uh, they're realising, my clients, that is, that uh, we are not doing this alone. Uh, we are doing this in collaboration with a vast array of others who also believe in ending homelessness or curing cancer or uh, solving the mental health uh, uh, epidemic. And consequently, uh, what I've asked my clients to do is to be very strategic about who you partner with because there's no shortage of partners And in fact, it's common for my clients to have up to 100 uh, partner organisations. What we do is is we say, okay, uh, prioritise those on two dimensions. Dimension number one is how important are they to the achievement of your mission or your purpose? And number two, uh, what is the degree of influence um, or collaboration that you have with that partner? And what we do is we map it onto a uh, set of concentric circles where we say uh, those that are uh, important, uh, put them uh, closer to the centre and those that are, uh, and the strength of your relationship, uh, map it as a small, medium or large circle. So what you want is large circles closer to the centre and you can immediately see visually where you need to do work because what some of my clients are saying is, well, gosh, we're cultivating partnerships that are actually pretty low value. 
And what we should be doing is turning that effort towards cultivating partnerships with these three, four or five organisations, because that's actually where the uh, the highest impact is to be gained. The potential. And then that begs yep. the question of, of who are those organisations? And, and once again, I differentiate and say, you really need to, in any public value space uh, or non-profit space, you need to have policy partners. So they're your regulators, you know, governments, uh, right. others, uh, think tanks possibly, um, your informational partners, you know, research institutes, universities, owners of data sets that you can rely on, um, uh, your delivery partners, uh, those who are doing service delivery similar to yours, but for adjacent audiences or in adjacent service areas. So if you are a mental health organisation, you will want to have partners in the employment space, the job training space, the housing space, the alcohol and drug space. Absolutely. Um, and, and then your grassroots partners uh, form partnerships with your public, with your community. Um, uh, so they are ultimately supportive of your work. So when we put all of that together uh, for a client, uh, it usually reveals some very clear direction in terms of which eggs need to be put into which baskets from a partnership development perspective. And uh, lastly, I'd say, you can hear I've got a lot to say about it. <laughs> yeah, I love uh, it. No. Lastly, I would say that um, uh, you, a lot of organisations think about merger I think prematurely right. and uh, there are many types of partnership that are possible uh, without having to go down the merger path. It's a little like saying, well, the only way we can enjoy each other's company is by getting married. Well, no, there's a lot of things we can do. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. And well, it's fantastic all around. I can only imagine the aha moments that occur in those rooms uh, or maybe in it's the virtual rooms now that you're having these conversations where mm -hmm. organizations are realizing that partnerships, either that they're spending too much time on now, or obviously those that they're not. And uh, to agree with you and to my research, in fact, concluded mm -hmm. the same thing about mergers. I think often uh -huh. we're, you know, organizations are often, they move too quickly and it's all, it's kind of an all or nothing uh, prospect yeah, and yeah as you're pointing out that maybe there are other things uh -huh. between uh merging all out yeah yeah look certainly uh in australia uh and i don't know what the numbers are in the us but here almost a half of all non-profit organizations in a given year are either actively merging or are entertaining the prospect of the merger. Wow. Um, that doesn't mean necessarily they're going through formal due diligence, but uh, they're having a discussion about it around the board table. Um, that's half. So, so it is incredibly prevalent here, this consolidation of sectors. And right. it doesn't matter which sector you look at, it's, it's rife. Uh, and there are very good reasons for it. But equally, uh, I, I caution my clients uh, and say, ask yourselves what you're really wanting here. And if what you're really wanting is a, a partnership, uh, ask yourselves whether there are other ways of achieving that end, uh, exclusive of a merger per se. Absolutely. There are, there are programmatic alliances and partnerships and their back office mm -hmm. collaborations and things that can be done, obviously, that don't require a, an all out merger. And so I'm glad mm -hmm. you share mm -hmm. my thoughts on the caution <laughs> that we should uh, heed. Yeah. Um, again, a concept that I really enjoyed in your book and some of your other kind of uh, explanations, uh, the two fundamental rules. And I, if I'm not mistaken, mm -hmm. Andrew, I think your book almost starts and finishes with what you call the two rules. I wonder if you would elaborate mm -hmm. on them for our listeners. Sure. Look, I can give you the 60 second version of each. And then I can <laughs> also finish by saying uh, why the two rules don't work if a third rule isn't in place. Okay. <laughs> and I, I, so, you've got my attention uh, now. You've got my attention for sure. <laughs> Well, it's, it's, it's interesting because both the rules are somewhat counter to common sense because in my experience, 
nearly all of my clients would say, oh, no, we're already doing these things. Uh, however, if you look closely, you'll see that the best organisations are doing them. Uh, and, you know, if you look internationally at things like, you know, organisations like the World Wildlife Fund or Amnesty International or, you know, Dress for Success, you know, these are organisations that are doing these things. Uh, and then on a much larger scale, you can argue, you know, the Gates Foundation, they're, they're doing it in an exemplary fashion. But essentially, the two rules pattern are these. Rule number one, which applies mostly to boards, but executives as well. And rule number one is simple, know your impact. In other words, uh, I test this by asking six questions. Uh, and those six questions are very, very simple. Uh, why do you exist? Uh, number two, um, what is your theory of change? Um, in other words, how do you work? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, here's a problem, here's an intervention or a set of interventions, what then happens? Um, number three, what is your role? What do you do and what don't you do? Um, number four, how do you know that you, when you're successful? Um, so what are the result areas that signify success? Um, number five, what is your desired scale? Uh, because there are plenty of nonprofits that will operate best as a niche, neighbourhood, uh, specialist organisation, and then there are those that will uh, have ambitions to be global or national. Right. Um, right. And lastly, number six, what are the values that you uphold? In other words, what are the beliefs that when shared and observable as behaviours predict our success? So I ask those questions and I ask people, uh, to what degree do you think these have been well articulated and are commonly held? And I'm looking for, you know, I've, I've got a scorecard which people can go to on my website free of charge to, to answer these questions. Yep, yep. And I find that 80% is the threshold for really high functioning organisations. Um, uh, above 65 is acceptable. Below 65, there's some serious work to be done. Um, so that's rule number one. Know your impact by Love being that. able to answer those questions. And, and can I, not to interrupt, interrupt you quickly. Yeah, go on. I would imagine most of the organizations I work with, particularly board members, no offense to them, could not answer all six of those questions. Do you find... No, I guess you're no, saying neither can my clients. Yeah, neither right. can my clients. And in fact, this is the way we lead into the strategic conversation. I start by saying the first thing we are going to do is have a conversation amongst your thought leaders and your decision makers uh, on these six questions because Good. they actually do know the answers. They sometimes need assistance in uh, teasing them out or yes. in agreeing yes. on them. Well, uh, it's it's such a good exercise, and again, I'm I'm going to lift that up in our our show notes. And as you noted, the mm -hmm. the resource you've got on your website is a, an sure. easy means for someone to utilize. But yeah, sorry to interrupt mm. you. Please continue. Mm. No, that's okay. And and look, rule number two is is um, uh, so rule number one is know your impact. Rule number two is create daily impact. Um, one of my mentors uh, is very fond of saying, Andrew, remember, if you improve 1% per day after 70 days, because of compounding, you've, you've doubled your impact. And <laughs> Good Good so uh, create daily impact in my language boils down to organisations that can leverage four or five factors, but, but the main ones are focus, uh, do what works, have a bias towards doing what works as opposed to the doing what doesn't work or doing what you don't know works. Um, second is uh, a bias towards innovation. So uh, are you doing, is, is 25 or 30% of your business today made up of things that you were not doing three years ago? Um, that's a really good litmus test. Interesting, um, interesting. Yeah, leverage, and I'd say leverage your customers or your clients um uh, are you actually getting your patients if you're in healthcare or your residents if you're in aged care um getting them to do as much as possible in the interests of uh helping themselves um or are you being uh, over 
uh, overprotective, overcautious, um, overconscious of risk, uh, etc. And lastly, it's what we talked about a moment ago, which is partnerships. Are you getting uh, an effort multiplier out of your partnerships? So, so that's what I mean by daily impact. If you're focusing, innovating, leveraging your customers, partnering very effectively on a daily basis, then you, you can't but not grow uh, your impact and your effectiveness. Yeah, love that. I, I cannot lift it up enough, I think, to current nonprofit leaders to consider that framework. It's such a, a, a healthy exercise on many levels. And of course, those that are pondering nonprofit leadership, I think understanding these principles, Andrew, will only help them when they have opportunities mm -hmm. to lead an organization and to uh, move these the kind of things forward. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and then it leads me to the third rule, uh, which is in the book, it's, it's hidden at the back in the, uh, <laughs> yeah. in the afterword, where I basically say, uh, look, knowing these rules is great, but ultimately there's one practice that will help you do this. And it's what I call radical honesty. Uh, it's the ability to uh, push through a bit of discomfort and answer some hard questions, challenge one another, uh, accept that the past was not ideal and neither will the future be, but we are prepared to take a, a, an honest look at ourselves. Uh, and organisations that, that can practice radical honesty, I find, are the ones who can actually know their impact and create the daily impact uh, most successfully. I think that's well put. In fact, I uh, work with an organization called Board Source here in the States. Mm -hmm. and they lift up a, a concept that I think is similar to what you just described. Uh, the radical honesty, I guess, is uh, mm -hmm. they suggest boards and organizations at least once a year should consider if they should continue existing as they are at all. Um, uh, yeah. you know, in other words, just yeah. a, to me, a radical uh, look in the mirror. Um, mm -hmm. Could mm -hmm. our organization be better off, uh, you know, handing the keys to someone else to do it? Uh, so it, it kind of forces you, I guess, to uh, truly articulate, as you said, some of those fundamentals. And if we can't, mm -hmm. then perhaps mm -hmm. we should look at an alternative. And, and I, I applaud that, and, and, and I'm smiling widely as you say that, Patton, because uh, some of the, 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 the best aha conversations I've had with boards uh, are along those lines precisely, where I've asked them, yeah, why you? Why are you in this business? Uh, in another instance, uh, I, I had a number of organisations sitting together to solve um, uh, uh, a pretty uh, profound issue relating to um, uh, early childhood development in disadvantaged communities. And by asking a series of those questions, uh, an organisation right there and then in the room stood up and said, you know what, uh, we're in receipt of $600,000 of funding to deliver a program and hearing what's going on in this room, we are not the right people to do it and we are going to give it to you guys over there. Wow. Um, and everyone just applauded and it was so evident that this was in fact the best use of those funds. And uh, so, so it's my way of saying I couldn't agree more <laughs> in that way of, of asking, uh, you know, are we the right people to be doing this? That's well put. And again, what a great example of radical honesty leading to the best result, mm -hmm. frankly, for the people we serve. And I think that's sometimes yeah. what can be lost as we get caught in the kind of bureaucracy of our organization. Perhaps <laughs> we're missing that fundamental question or questions that you're asking. Mm -hmm. um, you, you've referenced, we both have referenced boards of directors um, and what I wanted to ask you about is the kind of the dynamic of board and staff. Uh, you have mm -hmm. helped bring those groups together. Uh, I'm guessing there may be differences between the Australian organizational structures and U.S., but I bet there are more similarities than mm -hmm. differences. Mm -hmm. But what, what have you found? You know, I hear that kind of the, yeah, the sure. claim of <laughs> the, the staff side saying the board's driving me crazy. Uh, what, what are you seeing? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, Patton, one of my favourite things to do is to ask uh, 
uh, CEOs uh, of uh, non-profit organizations uh, where I say to them, if your board went away for a couple of years, in other words, they just didn't meet, uh, <laughs> right. what would your reaction to that be? And I get three reactions. Uh, reaction number one is, well, you know, that would be a problem because I actually rely on my board uh, for the following insights right. or, right. or uh, you know, checking direction and having a reference point to, to do that. Or, uh, you know, some of my board are very well connected and I rely on those connections for something or another. Um, now, I get a second response which is, well, to be perfectly honest, Andrew, not much would change if they went away for two years. I'm perfectly capable of running this organisation. Wow. And uh, it would continue just fine. Um, so it would make zero difference. And then, as you can see where this is going, the third right, answer right. is where the CEO leans forward and says, Andrew, can you make that happen, please? <laughs> Soon. <laughs> because, yeah, because my board is driving me crazy. And uh, uh, I know of uh, CEOs who will say that the uh, maintenance effort of keeping the board level governance running will at times occupy a week of their month. Now, you, you might find that staggering, but I've had uh, more than I'm one surprise say to me, yep. 20 to 25% of my time is spent reporting to my board, uh, getting questions from my board, managing the relationships, keeping people on side, uh, keeping them uh, on message, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, you know, we could spend a whole other episode on this topic alone, couldn't we? Uh, oh, sure. But I, I'm curious, have you seen any characteristics of the kind of high performing staff board relationships that perhaps are things that nonprofit yeah. leaders could think about? Oh, very much so, very much so. And I agree, Patton, as well. You and I could talk about this for hours. Therefore, I'll give the three minute version here. <laughs> Thank uh, you. And if, if, I, if I think about the fact that what most of my CEO and executive clients, if they complain, they complain about boards being uh, disengaged or they complain about the micromanaging um, so acting as if they are management um, and so to answer your question what do the best performing boards do they do neither um, of those things they are both engaged and right. they understand their role and they don't micromanage therefore um, uh, what I do with boards is I get them very clear about what they should be doing and how much time they should be allocating to these things. So I say to boards, you've only got four roles uh, or four things you bring to an organisation. And those four things are insight, uh, insight about the problem you are solving in your society or community, yep. uh, foresight, your strategic uh, radar that helps you uh, make assumptions about the future and look beyond the horizon, vigilance, which is looking at the success factors and the risk factors in this business, and I call it a business, um, uh, and that, that's more than just reporting. Um, uh, it's keeping an eye on the most important success factors. Right. And lastly, uh, the fourth role is capability, and not their own capability but making sure that they have got the most capable delegate in the form of their chief executive and that that chief executive is capable of building the capability of the organisation. So in no case should a board be involved in, you know, human resource decisions below chief executive uh, un unless there are exceptions to that. Right. Um, there are a few but not many. And then I say to my board clients, uh, let's build a pyramid. Um, and in that pyramid, let's allocate the amount of time you should be spending on things. So you should be spending five to 10% of your time on uh, external communications. That's telling the story of your organization. Um, you know, gathering uh, external stakeholders who are going to contribute to your success. 
um, you should be spending 10 to 15% on governance issues. You should be spending 10 to 15% on performance. And you should be spending pretty much the rest of your time on strategic issues. Um, and those strategic issues might be related to capability, they might be related to vigilance, they might be related to foresight, and they might be related to insight. And you should be able to calendar, calendar those discussions over a cycle uh, of a year of meetings or workshops or roundtables or strategy retreats or whatever it is. And having that structure keeps boards, in my experience, um, highly focused, highly motivated, uh, and it keeps the CEO and the executive team very, very clear on what their role is you know, with respect to their board. Uh, it, it's a fantastic structure um, and certainly from the staff perspective gives them focus. But I love your point that uh, the board is going to be more engaged because I think a lot of these board members don't have that structure either. And, and no, no wonder perhaps they misbehave <laughs> from a staff perspective sure. because we're yeah. not providing them with a structure like you just described. Correct. Correct. Uh, and then, uh, yes, you, you do end up with those scenarios where, uh, you know, staff are approached by directors, by board members, uh, and they don't know whether the conversation they just had with a board member constitutes a direction or whether it was just a chat. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and uh, exactly. You know, those things are fairly, fairly, you know, mundane, but they can have uh, significant ramifications. Andrew, that uh, was a great uh, additional point. You have provided a gold mine of wisdom that I knew you would. And I guess let me wrap up by asking this question. As you know, many of my listeners uh, are in or aspire to be in nonprofit mm. leadership. Mm -hmm. uh, what advice mm. do you give someone? I know you run in people all the time that probably are considering mm. this career path. Are there some words of wisdom yeah. you might offer them? Very much so. Uh, I'm, I'm frequently asked by people either starting a career in nonprofit leadership or are uh, thinking about it. Um, and I, I say I've only really got three pieces of advice. Advice number one is keep asking why. Um, just ask that question constantly. Give yourself that as a North Star. Yeah. Um, you know, why us? Why them? Why me? Um, the second piece of advice is uh, always be thinking work backwards from the outcome, not forwards from the task. Um, so uh, it's, it's kind of obvious, but uh, ultimately it's that question of what is the outcome we are seeking here? Absolutely. Um, you know, again, if I go back to the uh, spinal cord injury people, you know, the outcome is uh, quality of life after a catastrophic life change. Uh, the outcome is not uh, someone to come and feed me and shower me and bathe me uh, and clean my house. Um, right, right. So, uh, and then my third piece of advice is to understand that most nonprofit organizations that are in the human services, but equally many of the others as well, um, are not employed to do anything directly. They are there as motivators, enablers, facilitators, engagers of communities. And therefore, what you're employed to do is to release the power of others. You are not there to do anything yourself. In other words, what you should be doing is sitting on your hands and not doing anything very much, <laughs> right. um, but ensuring that you can enable others to do things that bring out their power. And so my advice is, yeah, keep asking why, work backwards from the end goal and uh, uh, understand that you are fundamentally a facilitator. Wonderful. Uh, yet another great addition to the content. I will be excited to put into our show notes and obviously want to connect people to these topics, to your book and the great work you're doing. But um, I think you and I both are staring at a bookshelf. We are fans of the written word. <laughs> so might I ask you to offer a parting gift or two to our listeners? Um, is there a book or books that you might recommend to someone on the nonprofit path? 
look, very much so. And uh, none of the books I would recommend are specifically about nonprofit leadership. Sure. Uh, most of the books that I'd recommend uh, are around A, becoming a highly effective human being, Good. B, about being a highly effective leader, and C, being a highly effective member of society. Uh, and so the sorts of books, and I'm happy to provide a, a, a short reading list for those of your listeners who are readers, but my view is, is that early career uh, people, people in their 20s into their mid-30s, uh, will do really well to just build solid foundations right. in understanding business, understanding human dynamics. So, you know, it could be a subscription to Harvard Business Review, which would be invaluable. Um, it could be a book like The Trusted Advisor by David Meister, which yes. teaches the fundamental skill of how to be of value to another human being. Um, um, or it could even be a specialist area of human uh, uh, interaction like uh, neuro-linguistic programming, um, you know, NLP. Uh, read books on that, which will teach uh, how to manage your emotional state, how to be focused on outcomes, uh, those sorts of things. Right. And then mid-career, my, my view is, is that the best thing people can be reading in mid-career are what I call optimization books. They're, they're ways, hacks, or or ways to think about being more effective than you already are. So this is where books like James Clear's Atomic Habits come in, or the books that Tim Ferriss has written, um, Tribe of Mentors or Tools of Titans, which are absolutely jam-packed full of nuggets of gold that you can apply literally today. That yes, will, indeed. They're easily the 1% per day uh, for all of us. And then I'd say the other layer of books I strongly recommend to people is, is not professional development books, but books about the nature of society. So, you know, books uh, by people like, you know, Yuval Harari, who's written about the nature of society, or Malcolm Gladwell, who writes about social science phenomena, or books about, you know, uh, there's a, a, a researcher called Shoshana Zuboff, who's written a fantastic book about the surveillance economy, which is all about how uh, uh, all of the digital data about our whereabouts, our purchasing patterns, our online interactions are actually being turned into economic products. Now, I would say these are important things for us to be knowing about. And uh, yeah, there are far too many books and far too little time to read them in. So that's just a short list. <laughs> Andrew, I, I knew I liked you and uh, you have confirmed that uh, addition of uh, books to my bookshelf, um, I'm sure will be shared by our listeners. So thank you for sharing all that. I will capture it and share it. And I'm sure you'd be open to folks reaching out to you to maybe seek other recommended books as we are trying to do mm -hmm. through this podcast, frankly, every week. Um, great. Andrew, where can people uh, find out more about you and the great work you're doing at uh, WorkWell Consulting? Look, I, I'm, I'm always fascinated in talking with people about the work they're doing and certainly the work that I'm doing. So uh, a great way to connect is LinkedIn. Uh, just look for me, uh, Andrew Hollow. Uh, Hollow is H-O-L-L-O, -L -L -O, no W on the end. Uh, <laughs> right. And I'm posting something there most days, so fairly active. Naturally, there's a website. Uh, my business name is workwell.com.au. Uh, and you can sign up for a weekly newsletter there that I put out every Friday, which is called the Five Minute Strategic Mindset. And that's usually three things that I've been observing over the week uh, with a strategic question that, that many of my board uh, director and executive clients uh, find extremely helpful, uh, so they tell me. And, of course, on the website, you can also get a uh, copy of the, uh, of the book from Impossible to Possible. And, Patton, I'd, I'd be delighted to offer a uh, complimentary copy of the book to uh, all of your listeners. So uh, please encourage them to get in touch. 
excited to lift that up. What a nice special bonus uh, associated with this episode. We will indeed have a link that folks can sign up for. And I would absolutely recommend the wonderful reading of From Impossible to Possible. And Andrew, thank you again for joining me on the path. An absolute pleasure to talk and have a great day and a great year and a great decade. So thanks, Patton. Well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Andrew as much as I did. And no matter where you are in the world, I know you came away with some practical ideas that can help shape your nonprofit leadership, particularly around strategic planning. Don't forget the show notes available on our website, PattonMcDowell.com, where you can find more about all the topics we discussed and especially your access to the free copy of Andrew's book, From Impossible to Possible. As always, please consider sharing this episode with someone else on the path. This would be a great one to get someone thinking about nonprofit leadership. And as always, if you haven't yet, please consider subscribing to our podcast. It's available on all of the primary podcast platforms. Don't miss any of our weekly episodes. They come out every Thursday morning. And also so you won't miss special bonus episodes like this one, which we will produce at least once a month. Thanks for all you are doing in the nonprofit sector, especially right now. And keep up the good work for causes that are most meaningful to you. I'll keep bringing you this kind of content so you can do it even better. Have a great week, and I'll see you next time on The Path.